Amen. Thank you, brother. That's a good word. As is my custom, I want to start with a review and preview where we have been and where we are going. Also on this review, I want to try to make it a little bit new for you because I tell you every week, uh, this book is written to Jews, those who are following the, the old covenant, who have begun to follow Jesus, and now that they're following Jesus, they're discouraged. They've encountered some hard times, some hard teaching, some hard temptation, and they are discouraged in their walk. And so this writer is writing to them saying, don't quit, don't go back, stick with Jesus. And so by extension, it's written to us saying, you're following Jesus now. If you encounter hard things, hard times, hard temptations, hard teachings about Jesus, don't quit, keep going forward. The way I want to make that new for you is that I started focusing, thinking, dwelling on what it would have been like for this original reader. Why are they discouraged? I, gotta, I just started to imagine the kind of isolation they must be going through. They are in their Jewish communities. Those Jewish communities want to practice the sacrifices and go to the temple and celebrate their priests. And then they just break away from their families and say, this, this is the old ways. The Messiah has come and we're following after Jesus. And so they get some social ostracizing from who they know, but they didn't go into a very Christian world. They went into a pagan world. They left Judaism, went into the pagan world, and they find no place. They find isolation. And so they really needed some encouragement. I also recognize sermons, preaching, is not just for a people where you are. Uh, it's a shepherd's job to think ahead. It's a shepherd's job to look for future threat. And I, I don't know where the United States are going, but I do know uh, that if, if it becomes harder to be a Christian here, if it becomes harder to keep your job and be a Christian here, if it becomes harder to follow Christ and not compromise what he's taught, I don't want you to melt away. I want you equipped to already have preloaded. If it gets hard, if you start getting the temptations and the hard times, preloaded. Jesus is better. Amen. Whatever I would go to, however I would fall away, I know Jesus is better than anything I would go to. So that's what the theme of this book is. Don't quit. Stick with Jesus. He's better than anything else you could get. Now, preview. This book's repetitive, especially chapters 8, 9, and 10. In every chapter, he tells you, Jesus is a better priest who didn't go into a temple. He went into the heavenly places to go before God himself, not for the Ark of the Covenant. And Jesus didn't bring the blood of animals. He brought himself. And then he sat down. This, the work is done. He's going to say it again today. He keeps telling you that. And so while uh, that presents a challenge, it also tells me this. We're apparently supposed to really focus on that. If you keep saying it over and over, Hebrews writer, which is probably a sermon that's been trans transcribed, if you keep telling me the same thing over and over, you must really want me to dwell on that and think about how awesome that is, that the work is done, that sin is paid for. Now, while that presents a challenge, it also presents an opportunity. The opportunity is we can then do what Wayne just prayed. I love that you prayed that. We can then look at different facets of Jesus that he's bringing up. And that's what we're going to do here. I, th I think the author of this wants you to see a different part of Jesus today that we don't talk about as much. When we sing, when we teach about Jesus, we sing and teach about Jesus a lot about his death because his death paid for our sins. The crescendo of every song we sing is his resurrection, and that's good. It, it brings life to sinners. We love his death, his burial, his resurrection for what it means for us. What this text will highlight today is not the death of Jesus, but the life of Jesus. He did die the death we deserve to die, as we say around here. But today we get to see the life we should have lived. 
He actually lived how we needed to live and did that on our behalf. So we'll get to see today, yes, we'll talk about the death of Jesus, but we get to see really highlighted the life of Jesus and why that matters. Final piece of preview, I have this labeled in four parts. The first part is just two words, the problem. The first four verses are going to tell us a problem. Then the rest of these are more in parallel. Then we're going to see the plan for our redemption, the accomplishing of our redemption, and the reward of our redemption. The plan, the accomplishing, and the reward for our redemption after we see the problem. Final note, I don't have much of an application section for you today. I'm going to apply this to your lives as we go. So when we finish verse 18, we've got very little else to say, and we will go have a Merry Christmas together. Let's do this. Uh, Chapter 10, starting in verse 1, we're going to read the first four verses. This is our problem. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, of the true form, that's Jesus, of these realities, it can never the Old Covenant, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. That's the thing it can't do. It can't make us perfect. Verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, the sacrifices ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, the old way, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Several things I want to highlight for you here in this problem. First, I want to go back to that word shadow in verse 1. He mentioned this just a couple chapters ago that all of these things we've been learning about, sacrifices, temples, tabernacles, priests, these are copies and shadows. We said two weeks ago they're just pointing you towards something else. I wanted to think about a way to get that more fully in your mind, to make it indelible that you can think about those good things. The sacrifices were good, the priests were good, the the temple was good, but they were a shadow of something better. And here's how I I came up with to try to get that deep deep in your head. I thought about our wedding pictures. I love those pictures. I will review those maybe once a month. Just go back and look through them. It's a good day. It's a good day. I love what they represent for us. And then even as it gets broader, I see some of the most important people in my life in those photos. And I love looking back on that day. They are a picture, a shadow, a copy of real things. If I had only the pictures, that would be really, really devastating. If I only had the pictures. If I did not have the real thing to which they point. I need the real thing to actually be fulfilled. I need the real thing, not the picture to be satisfied. I found this in, my, in myself, uh, now, now, now being married, I used to travel all the time for work, and it was never bothering to me. I've traveled now one time for work, and it's hard to sleep when we're not under the same roof. And I could get out my phone and be comforted by pictures, but that's a cold comfort. What I found is I need the real thing. Pictures, shadows, copies, they're good. They're not the real thing. And these sacrifices and priests and temple and tabernacle, they are good. But man, they were always about Jesus. They were always pointing his way. They were good, but we need the real thing if we're going to have our problem of sin solved. And we see that there's a problem because he says here in verse 2, sorry, we're still in verse 1 there, that these sacrifices were continually offered. So despite the law being simple, not easy, despite the law being simple, we just kept failing. So we needed more sacrifices. The law was simple. 
honor your marriage vows. Don't lie to your, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Love God more than you love anything else. Honor the Sabbath. The laws were simple, they weren't easy. And so because we kept failing, because we couldn't be made perfect, the sacrifices had to keep going. So we see in the first four verses here, this problem, there's another limitation on the old covenant. Last week, the limitation was it could not perfect our consciences to tell right from wrong or tell right from almost right. What we find this week is this, this old covenant, it was limited in that it could not perfect those who draw near. It couldn't make us perfect. So their experience was this. They kept coming to the temple and doing the things they were supposed to do, but their nature wasn't changing. They weren't getting any better. They just kept having to sacrifice, and then they would go sin, and then they'd go sacrifice. So that presents us this problem. So we have sacrifices for sins. That's, that's the sins are being forgiven. The problem is no one's being made perfect. We're going to need someone to live perfectly, to present to the Father a perfect life lived. That's our problem. We need someone to do that. So what's the plan? Verses 5 through 10 will tell us that plan. Let's split it in two. Here's the plan for our redemption, our need for sin to be paid for, but also for someone to live perfectly. Verse 5, here's the plan. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, talking about Christmas, when Christ came into the world, Christ said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. So I'm going to toss a word here in then. Instead. So sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Instead, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, the Father, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will. Oh God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. I hope your Bible has some quotation marks here in verse 5 when it says, He said, then quote sacrifices. This is a quote from Psalm 40. The Hebrews writer is just putting Psalm 40 in Jesus' mouth. And so Psalm 40, quoted here in Hebrews 5, here's what it's saying. What's happening is sacrifices are being offered. Offerings are being offered. But that's not ultimately what God wants. Yes, he's commanded you to do it so that sin can be covered over by the blood of these bulls and goats. But that's not actually what he wants. What he actually wants is for you to obey so that you don't have to have sacrifices of bulls and goats. He wants you to be in alignment with him. God doesn't just want your, uh, want your sacrifices. He wants your heart. He wants you to, to, be in his, to be in his nature, to align with his ways. So we've got a problem here. We are offering sacrifices, but what God wants is actually obedience. So what's the solution? Jesus says in verse 5, okay, I'll put on a body and go do it for them. A, a body you've prepared for me. And when I get on that body in verse 5, I get to come down here in verse 7. What have I come to do? I've come to do your will. I've come to be obedient. This is your story of Christmas. Yes, he came to die. We sing about that all the time. He was born to die for our sins. But before he did all that, he lived a perfect life for us so that he could be worthy to die for our sins. He put on a body to do his will. So that's, that's the plan. Before all of time began, that was the plan. Jesus was going to put on a body and come satisfy God's demand for perfection. These verses then celebrate not Jesus' death. They celebrate his life of obedience and love for God the Father. So listen, he encountered every temptation you have. Maybe not the exact people, but he encountered every type of irritating person you do. And he didn't sin. 
He had all of the uh, family drama. His family thought he was, he was crazy for a bit there. And he didn't sin. He came across all the various temptations you did and where you have fallen, where I have fallen, he did it. And not only did he abstain from sins we commit, he actively did everything expected of him. So you may not be committing grievous sin, but you are leaving good works undone. He didn't even do that. He did everything expected of him, and he restrained himself from all sin. He lived like God commanded, and we needed someone to do that for us. Let's continue that this, in verse 8 through 10, Psalm 40. It's continuing a quote from Psalm 40. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He, Jesus, does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So God prefers obedience over these sacrifices. Jesus gave God the obedience he wanted. God lived obediently in the face of God. So the Father has now two things. He has the perfect life lived. And then we find here that this, this life, by that perfect life being given, being an offering, we have been sanctified. The sacrificial system was an accommodation to what God wanted. God wanted obedience. We couldn't do it, and so there was a sacrificial system. So Jesus came and did it on our behalf. Now God has what he wants. That's the plan. All right, so how did he accomplish it? Verse 11. Verse 11 gives us the accomplishing of the plan. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, Christ sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, these are themes you have seen already, especially these last five weeks, themes you've seen quite a bit. Old priests never sat down. Their work was never done. As soon as they came out of the Holy of Holies, sins had been committed. They were going to have to go back in. So we get this very good news. Jesus' work, after living perfectly, his work of sacrifice, is done. All sins past, all sins present, all future sins taken away. Not just, excuse me, not uh, just covered, but now taken away. That's very good news. We should dwell on that. We will in a minute. But before we do that, I want to highlight one quick four-word phrase that came up here. That Christ is going to make his enemies a footstool. This is a reference to the second coming and leading up to the second coming that Christ would be king, king overall. We'll get back to the main thread here in a second, but I don't want to go past that phrase. It's important. That Christ will make his enemies his footstool. I want to celebrate that. That every power arrayed against King Jesus in this world will one day be his footstool. That every wicked leader, that every ungodly ideology, one day Jesus will kick his feet up like they're an ottoman. He will destroy his enemies in every power arrayed against him. That's something we celebrate at Christmas. I don't want tomorrow. Not just I don't want tomorrow. This should not be tomorrow that we just celebrate a sweet baby boy. We celebrate him coming as a conquering king over all of his enemies. We just sang it. Uh, 
Born a king in Bethlehem's plain, gold I bring to offer again. This is king forever, reigning ever over us all to reign. He's coming as a king. I love that our Christmas songs are a pronunciation of a king. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. What should the earth do? Receive your king. And will there ever be any power or any other force that could contradict this king? No, he's got no rival. He has come to make his enemies a footstool. So celebrate Christmas tomorrow for sweet baby boy, but also celebrate the king has come to conquer. He will win this battle. All right, so that was a quick aside because I wanted to get to that, this four, that forward phrase is powerful and I love it. But then he gets to something that sounds like a contradiction, but it leads to a wonderfully profound truth. He says here that Christ has perfected those who are being sanctified. As you read that, it should feel weird. It should feel like a contradiction. How can I be both perfected? I have been perfected by the work of Jesus. He lived like I should have lived, and then he died for me. I'm perfected. Well, how am I still being sanctified? How can I be doing both? That's a good question, and I, I want to run over it. This is one of the uh, many already but not yet uh, realities of the Bible. The Bible has several of these, that we are already perfected, but we are still being sanctified. So let me break it into two. We'll do both. First, you are being perfected, and then we'll talk about how you are being sanctified. First, you are being perfected. This is good truth from this text. All of your sins from when Jesus died, they were future sins. And according to this text, they are not covered over. They are gone. They are, the sins are taken away through a perfect priest, a better priest going to a better temple, going through with better blood and a better sacrifice, they are gone. You don't practice offerings or sacrifices or good works for the sake of God's approval anymore. By this offering, this text just said, you are perfected. I hope that does something to you the next time we sing Cornerstone. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone. Last line, faultless. Faultless to stand before the throne. How, how glorious a truth is that at, at Christmas or any time? My standing before God is perfect and secure because he said, right, well, you guys can't do it. I'll put on a body and I'll come do God's will. And when, is that, when that's been completed, I will take my, your sins on me, I will put them on the cross, and a partnership between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, your sin will be punished cosmically on the cross. So I get to stand perfected. That should fuel your worship. That through the blood of Christ, your God looks on you, and He does not see your sins. This is good news. But then you might say, and have a good argument. Okay? So God sees me as perfected. But man, I sinned on the way here. I, I, I sinned in traffic this morning. If I've been made perfect, what, 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 uh, why am I still acting like this? Well then, part two here, you are being sanctified. That word, sanctified, see it this way. You've been made holy. Uh, but I'd love for you to see it as a changing of orientation. You were wrongly oriented towards fleshliness, towards worldliness. Your mind, your heart, things you wanted were wrongly oriented. By your salvation, Jesus' work, your mind has been made right. Your heart has been made right. Now you are sanctified. My mind, my heart, my appetites can want the things that God wants. Now, I ask you to do this first. 
Would you measure that in yourself? Measure your sanctification? Assess yourself from when you were first converted to now. Or just pick another time. Pick a time 10 years ago, 5 years ago. And then today, and ask yourself some questions like these. Are there sins in my life that used to be so normal for me and I, I don't really commit them much anymore? Or maybe the Lord has removed those sins from me altogether. Has your interest and your pursuit of spiritual things grown over time where things of the world do grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace? And some things of the world just kind of bore you because your interest is growing in what the Lord has for you. Have you grown in your discipline of the flesh? That when your flesh rises up and says, I got a website that you need to go to that you always go to, that you can just tell your flesh, no, I'm not going there. Uh, your flesh rises up and says, I got someone I think you should talk to, someone from your, from your past that you should probably contact. And you can tell your flesh, no, I'm not doing that. There's uh, some flesh rising up that says, you've got some things you should be doing, but man, the, the, that, the pleasure of inactivity is just is so good. And you tell your flesh, no, I'm going to do what the Lord has called me to do. Have you grown in your ability to tell your flesh no? But then also finally this one, have you grown in your joy of Christ? That of the things that excite you, the things that animate you, are they less and less worldly things and more and more spiritual things? Is it more and more exciting for you that someone in your family, someone you love, comes to you with biblical questions and you can see the fruit in their life and you're so charged up at that and you're less charged up at the outcome of a, of a sporting event? Man, that's, that's growth. And if you can measure those, if you can say, yeah, I'm sinning less. I'm more interested in spiritual things. I can tell my flesh no more often. I'm more joyful about the things Christ has done. Can you just praise God for that for a minute? Amen. That means he's holding you in. He will hold me fast. And your sanctification, your growth over time is evidence of the Lord doing it in you. And it's good news today. So you are being sanctified. Maybe you can see that in your life and I want you to measure it. But second, here's what we understand from this text. Growing sanctification, becoming more like Christ, necessarily means growing obedience. The problem we had is that no one would obey. So Jesus says, you've prepared a body for me. I'll put on that body. I'll go obey for them. So if Jesus came to the work of obedience and love for the Father, and we're following after Jesus, what should we grow in? Obedience to God and love for the Father. Which requires me then to respond to a way that this culture has discipled you poorly. This culture has discipled you in a way that obedience gets a pretty bad reputation in our day. We celebrate the rebel. We celebrate those who break off of, tradi of tr traditionalism. Now, sometimes we celebrate those rebels, and it's good, because what they're breaking off of was just tradition, and it wasn't biblical at all. But there is some romantic romanticizing we do of figures that just break away from obedience and go off and do their own thing. We've got to... Fix that in our own minds. Guys, that's definitely part of my discipleship. My discipleship says part of the American story is you get up and do your own thing. Well, what if my own thing hurts other people? What if it doesn't honor God? I don't want to do my own thing. If it doesn't honor God and, and, and also hurts others, I don't want to do that. So I thought of some illustrations for this. Some of these will be uncomfortable, but we need to talk about the ways that we have been discipled poorly by this world. It's good to align ourselves with God's way because God's way is 
is the manual for who we are. He made us. He knows what we're supposed to do, so he knows the way to life. And if we use life and the different aspects of life outside of the designer, things are going to go poorly. I, I thought about an illustration for this. That tomorrow morning, gentlemen, a lot of you are going to have toys to put together. I did that for years with, uh, with these two. And if you don't use the instruction manual, uh, you are probably going to get that toy wrong. It's not going to work properly when you're finished if you don't follow the maker's instructions. Or, another illustration, if you get a gift tomorrow and you try to use it for something the maker didn't intend, you're going to get frustrated. If you try to use your microwave to change the channel on your TV, you're going to get very frustrated. And the microwave maker is going to say, I didn't make it for that. I didn't, you're supposed to use that for an, another purpose. In the same way, God has given us life and different aspects of life. And if we use them wrongly, differently than the maker gave us, it's not going to go well for us. We're going to have disaster, and you'll see it all around, all around your culture. I'll give you a few examples. Gentlemen, in this culture, but also in this church, God gave us masculinity. There's some power. There's some influence. There is some, there's some significance we have to others. If we use our masculinity and power to get an easy life for ourselves instead of using that to serve others, we're going to make a very ugly world. We'll use our masculinity wrongly. Ladies, if you use your femininity to manipulate to get an, just an easy life instead of using the skills and abilities God has given you to, to serve others, we're going to make a very ugly world. We're using our, our masculinity and femininity wrong in a lot of ways culturally. We're using marriage wrongly. It's supposed to be that which uh, uh, the reason why a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife and we picture the gospel, that's its purpose. Our sanctification for one another and for the, the raising of the next generation, that's its, per, per, its, purchase, sorry, its purpose. But culturally, we've used it for lots of different reasons that are uh, destructive. Uh, we've used it as the capstone of a romantic relationship. So it's just about romant uh, a romantic relationship. It is about that, but not firstly. It's firstly about the gospel. And so when the feelings of the romanticism go away, we can just toss marriage in this, in this culture because it's not doing what we wanted it to. We, in my lifetime, decided that marriage was not a gospel picture, but it was supposed to be a, uh, a capstone of a cultural Moral acceptance. The, the campaign to change marriage's definition to include same genders was ultimately that. I want to use marriage to say to the culture what I'm doing is good. I want to use marriage as the approval of what I want. But that's not its purpose. It wasn't for that. It was, and are, are we seeing the wreckage of it? Are we seeing the wreckage in marriages by not using it properly? Are we seeing the wreckage of not using sex properly? God gave it to us in marriage between one man and one woman. And as it gets used improperly across the culture, you can probably tell me some stories about people in your life that have been left wrecked because we're using a good, good gift improperly. If you use your money and skills and talents to just keep getting more experiences and more stuff, and you don't have generosity for others, for your church, for ministry, and looking towards the future... And we just see wreckage everywhere because we're not using it properly. When we use governments to be fathers or husbands to, to people, we're not using it properly. That's not what God gave it to us for. And I'm going to quote Dr. Phil here on this. How's that working out for you? As you look around at how we're using masculinity and femininity and marriage and sex and governments and money, is it going well? We're living in a wreckage of disobedience. 
we're just wrecked by disobedience. What we should, oh man, the way to life is ask the maker, what am I supposed to do with it? What am I supposed to do with my masculinity? What am I supposed to do with my femininity and my money and sex and marriage? What am I supposed to do with, with, with the local, local governments? What am I supposed to do with it? And if he'll tell you, and just follow that, it leads to life. It leads to light in life if we'll just obey. Now, I want to give you something. Uh, I looked back on 2023. I listened to a sermon today. I, I read a lot from other guys. I'm about to give you something related to this that I think was the most profound thing I heard all year. This is one of the most profound things. It has stuck with me. And especially if you are here today, you are college age and younger. If you are only going to listen to five or six minutes today, listen to these five or six minutes as related to obedience. Obedience, that which Jesus came to do. It's the way to light in life. Your culture is lying to you. It's telling you that disobedience is the way to light in life. Doing your own thing is the, way to, is the way to happiness. It's not. It will make you miserable. Let me give you the most profound thing I heard in 2023. Our day inverts obedience. It makes it backwards. The right way to obedience is to first ask questions upward, outward, then inward. We would first ask upward. Lord, what would you have me do? Not what, not what I want to do. What do you have for me? What should I do as a man or a woman? What should I do in this marriage? How should I parent these kids? How should I manage my money? What should I think about anything going on in the world? I'm looking upward first. Will you tell me what I should do? And then I look outward. And I know my responsibilities. I first know my responsibilities to God, but then I look outward and I go, all right, you've made me a husband to this woman. I'm supposed to be a really good one. That's my, that's my joyful responsibility. I'm that man's son. I'm that woman's son. It's my joyful responsibility to do for them what is expected of me. I have two, two, two boys. They're two young men now. I have been made their uncle and something of a father figure. I know my responsibility, my joyful responsibility is to give them a good example so that they have something to follow after into being men. I look outward to you. I want to be a good shepherd to you because the Lord has given me this position for whatever reason. I want to be good at it. So I've looked upward and found out what I'm supposed to do. I've looked outward to know who I'm responsible to. And the final thing I ask is, what do I want? And if something I want contradicts one of my responsibilities to you or my responsibility to God, I will toss it. Because I don't determine what's right and wrong. I look upward, outward, and my responsibilities will indicate that for me. And then I, I'll follow those instincts. And can I give you imperfectly, I know, I know, imperfectly, but can I tell you, especially young people, that's so joyful. I've had a really joyful life. I'm loving life. And it's in part, I do it imperfectly, but it's because I ask first, Lord, what do you want me to do? What are my responsibilities? And I look out at you, and I know my responsibilities. And as I fulfill them, I'm joyful. Because why? The manual. The maker told me how to live. And I'm going to ask him first. And then that leads to joy. Now here is what your culture has done. It says first, look inward, number one. Ask yourself, what are my desires? What are my appetites? What kind of life do I want? Because I am the center of this life and I will get what I want. Then look outward. And if you find a parent or a sibling or an aunt or an uncle or a church will not agree with what you want inwardly, toss those people. They're toxic because you got to have what you want. Then you surround yourself outwardly with people who will tell you the thing that you want inwardly, it's good. Whatever you said you wanted inwardly, that's good, and we affirm that. 
and then finally look upward maybe and ask if there's a higher power that might have something to say about it if they ever look up at all. And if they, they do, they end up just finding some fake religion that will agree with them. I think you can, you can filter that through all of the modern sins of the world. I'm, I'm going give to you, give you one just because I think this has happened in the world. And again, young people, I know what world you're living in. And if your pastors don't respond to it, I don't know who's going to. So that's what's happened to the world in, in sexuality. People first ask, what are my appetites? That's the most important thing that I get my appetites. And then I will find people that tell me that what I want in my in sexuality, that tell me it's good, and it doesn't really matter what God says. Where the opposite story, you can get the story from people like uh, Rosaria Butterfield, from, uh, that you can t- hear her story, who was in a, a gay relationship and came out of it. She first started asking, wait, what does God want from me? And then what do I need to be obligated to to the people in my life? And now inwardly, the feelings I'm having, I will decline those feelings because... I want to serve God and I want to serve others. I'm not the center of everything. And so that's where I want to leave you on, on that. With That's the most profound thing I heard in 2023. Our day has inverted obedience and we need to get it right. Jesus came to obey and then die for our sins. And as we follow Jesus, that necessarily means we will follow after obedience. Coming from that place where we've already been made perfect and now we're being sanctified. Final thing I have for you, verses 15 through 18, just about five more minutes here. This is the reward. So we had the plan for our redemption. We had the accomplishing of our redemption. Now the reward from our redemption. Verse 15, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, There is no longer any offering for sin. So the law being on our hearts means we're being sanctified. Being sanctified, being made right, means over time, you're going to see more and more of your sins. You're going to recognize more and more the ways that you think worldly instead of godly. But as you are being sanctified, you get to live in these two wonderful truths. Your sins are forgiven, and there is no longer any offering or sacrifice to bring. So let me go through both of those because that's, that's what he itemizes here. He itemizes in verses uh, 15, excuse me, 16 and 18, I believe. There's no, there's no offering needed and your sins or your lawless deeds are not remembered anymore. I'll start here. That truth, my lawless deeds are not remembered anymore. That becomes better and better news the more sinful you realize you are. The more I've realized this, the kind of scoundrel I am, the better news it's been that my lawless deeds are not remembered anymore. I remember those dwelling points from week one, just five, about five, uh, four weeks ago. It said to, to grow up, to help mature. Remember the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, the sufficiency of Christ. The more I recognize how holy God is, how sinful I am, and how sufficient Christ was to live how I couldn't live, that's what we saw today, and then die how I should have died, this only becomes better news over time. It's better news at 37 than when I was 7. It's better news at 37 than when I was 27. Because I, I realize more and more, I got some lawless deeds. And it's so good that they are, they, that they are forgiven. They're for, not just forgiven, forgotten. Then so, well, number one, your sins are forgiven. But then number two, subpoint. That means there's no longer any offering or sacrifice to bring. So even for your ongoing sin, 
it's paid for. If you are dragging your good works up to the altar of God, He is unimpressed with your good works. Amen. He would say to you, get your good works off my altar. Yeah. Jesus paid for it for all time. Yeah. What Jesus said on the cross, I could say in this room, it is finished. You don't bring any more offering. You don't bring any more sacrifice. When Jesus died for you 2,000 years ago, He died for all your sins future. That's done. Your sins are forgotten because of what Jesus accomplished. Now I know. Uh, I've lived through this for these you know, 20 years of thinking through ministry things. There are some that will say to that being preached, that's a dangerous thing to preach. That's dangerous grace. When you say in a room of people, your sins are forgotten. Even your future sins are already forgotten. People will take that as, a, as permission to sin. Be careful of preaching this dangerous grace. I know I brought this up a couple weeks ago. That tends to be the last 20 years of American Christianity. Uh, was responding to legalism. So legalism uh, that I grew up very young in uh, said to Christians, be defined by all the things you don't do, all the things you abstain from, that's important. And then another group came up and said, no, 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 that's not the real Christianity. Real Christianity is all of grace, and uh, we, there's, there's joy to be found in the grace of God. And these people, legalists, get nervous at preaching this sort of grace. And I get that. But I can't change the message. That's what it says. There is forgiveness of sins. He will remember them no more. But I'd like to respond to that, that, that legalist, legalistic thinking because I kind of get it. When you really do get this, when you get the grace of God, it, I don't, it doesn't make you want to sin more. When you really understand what he's done, the price that was paid, it does not animate my desire to go out and sin some more because I know he'll forgive me. It animates my desire for obedience and intimacy. The more I see how glorious his grace is, the more I want to be like him. I thought about it this way. It's my final, uh, final two illustrations of the day. I thought about if I needed a, if I needed a new organ. Pick that organ. I need a new, new kidneys, new, uh, new heart, something like that. I know that the way I treated that new organ post-transplant would be way better than I treated the organ I used to have. If I had, the, in the old organ, I wasn't thinking about it. But now that I've been given something new, I've been given this great gift, man, I want to take whatever medicine I'm supposed to take, I want to have whatever habits I'm supposed to have, because I want to take care of this new thing. And if the Lord has given me that much grace, that my sins are forgiven, I want to take care of that. That's just awesome. What, what, what a cool gift I have. I want, to, I want to follow after that God who has given me this good gift, this good really heart transplant in that illustration. So that was the plan. The plan for our redemption was Jesus coming and living how you couldn't live. And then he accomplished it by dying the death, bringing the sacrifice that you couldn't do for yourself. And now you've got this incredible reward that your nature has been changed. Your sins have been forgiven. And now in this new nature, you can go after Christ, wanting the things that he wants more and more over time. Final word from me. That's a good gift. We're going to talk about gifts, right, the next day or so as a bunch of gifts are opened. This is the good gift you have been given is this new nature and this salvation. I want to close it by just illustration I heard this week that uh, there's a lot, of, uh, a, a lot of kids who are not super um, grateful this time of year and it, it hurts parents' feelings that there is even, uh, there, there's never a feeling of regret, uh, I hope, that you know, your kids aren't grateful and so you regret ever having them. Uh, but there was an illustration I heard. Uh, <laughs> this, I told that story, that illustration out of order just now, so I, I just ruined the punchline, but you still laughed. Here was, here was his point. 
even when parents see their, their kids not being grateful, they never regret having those kids. I want you to know that about your God today. I mean, I, I can get this a little bit. I was never a parent. But having, having someone that you're kind of a parent over, their pain is the most painful thing. Their failures you feel more than you feel your own failures sometimes. I have it indelibly in my head. Caleb messed up one of his fingers one time. He was a small child, like broke a finger. And Doug took him to the hospital. I remember getting a picture of that finger all mangled and messed up. And it still hurts me right now, thinking about it right now. Because he was hurt. I was, I was devastated by it. But my capability of being hurt by their pain never makes me regret that they're here. I'm so glad they're here. Your kid's failure, your kid's hurt they cause you doesn't make you go, I wish they wouldn't have been around. How much more? You're, you're great parents, most of you, I'm sure. How much more so can our God say that? He doesn't have any regrets this Christmas. He has no regrets that he sent his son to live how you couldn't live and die how you should have died, how I should have died. He looks at you and the progress you're making and he's so glad he bought you. He knew what he was getting. And so out of that joy, out of that security, let's use it to go after obedience, to go after God's ways, because they're good for us. There's life there. Let me pray for us as the band comes up.